You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Dan Gall is the Chief Academic Officer at Broward County Public Schools. The district serves the greater Fort Lauderdale area of South Florida and has nearly 270,000 students on 241 campuses. It's the sixth largest district in the country. Dan has been a learning leader in Austin, Washington, D.C., and Houston. In his fifth year in Broward, as part of Superintendent Robert Runsey's team, Dan oversaw the development of a great system of schools with well-developed personalized learning, the biggest speech and debate program, and the biggest computer science program in the country. In this interview, Dan talks about their crisis response program called Learning Never Closes. He reflects on leading through crisis, including hurricanes and mass shootings, and talks about why this pandemic is far more challenging. We think you'll find Dan to be one of America's most thoughtful education leaders. Let's listen in. Dan Gold, welcome to Getting Smart Podcast. Tom Vanderark, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with the Getting Smart community today. I, for some reason, I remember vividly um, walking the halls at McKinley High School with you. I think it was the, was it the fall of 2002 that you opened that school? So that's a, that's a great story. And it was um, right around then that we met. So I went to D.C. Public Schools to reopen a historic, beautiful building that had been closed in 1998. And I did get to D.C. in January of 2002 with the intention of uh, being the founding principal of the reopening, focused on technologies, giving opportunity to students, not based on high levels of academic achievement, but based on interest and motivation. The school was under reconstruction, and you and I walked halls that were empty at that time, a shell of a building. And um, we ended up, because of the, the vagaries of politics and economies, not opening till 2004. And we opened with two classes that first year, grades 9 and 10. Um, we had that first graduating class in 2007, and it continues to go strong. D.C. as a community should be proud of McKinley Technology High School. And our conversations and the, the man who brought us together, Steve Sellers now, deserve a lot of credit for um, making that happen. Uh, I had forgotten that you, you really you spent a, a decade in um, Austin before that. You did your graduate work there. You're a scientist. I really, uh, I, I had forgotten that, but you have an amazing background in science. I think you started a science high school in Austin before that. Is that right? Well, you're, you're a little too generous. I didn't found it, but um, the reason I showed up on the radar of people in D.C. while I was sitting in a high school principal chair in Austin, Texas, was that I was running what was called the Science Academy of Austin at that time. And the Science Academy was dedicated to super high achieving kids from throughout the Austin community. And as you can imagine, there's some amazing students that come out of that community. Um, It was a school within a school model and was in one of the poorest sections with students who had been denied the the community resources to, to cultivate their own talents. And there were tensions between this high achieving countywide or district wide school and the students from the local surrounding communities, um, issues of race and class at the forefront. And myself and the principal of the neighborhood schools had to work very closely together to bring the opportunities of the Science Academy to all the students and then bring them up to speed so that they were able to take advantage of those. 
We also had to make sure that the Science Academy students had the breadth of cultural knowledge and understanding so that they were more than technocratically proficient, but they were able to go out as full human beings upon graduation. That work uh, with a specialized group of schools drew some attention and somebody uh, must have noticed. Um, and that got me the opportunity to go to DC from Austin. But you asked, you know, why Austin? Um, so I was there for graduate school. So I, I landed um, in Austin in the, the fall of 86. I was a young graduate. I had finished my undergraduate work a year early. So that was at Vassar. So how did you get to Austin from Vassar? So I want to I want to give a big shout out to my parents here. My dad worked for the post office. My mom was a secretary for the computer science department at Vassar. Um, neither had gone to college, um, and they really wanted to make sure my sister and I took advantage of every opportunity. Because my mom worked at Vassar, once she hit five years, which would be halfway through my first year as an undergraduate, I got to go tuition free. That's the wow. only reason I got to go to a school with the, the pedigree of Vassar. And Vassar appealed yeah. to me because of its liberal arts and its science programs. I pretty early knew in my life that I wanted to study physics and um, was fascinated just with the ability of the human mind to understand the world and not the engineering side of the applications, but the real theory. So I went to Austin wanting to do eight-dimensional rotating black hole gravitational theory. <laughs> that, that's, you know, I, I still read and I went to Austin, but I, by that point, as an undergraduate at Vassar, I had finished my um, major coursework early, did an exchange program to go to Dartmouth College. And I got to tell you, even in the mid-80s, the cultural differences from the all- gender traditions of those two schools were stark, mm -hmm. tremendously stark. Vassar is an all-female school. Dartmouth is an all-male school. Still had some of the, the expressions of that history in their cultures. That cultural dissonance really caused me to add a new dimension to my life, which was um, social activism. So I got very active in the anti-apartheid movement. This was... Uh, obviously before Nelson Mandela assumed the presidency of South Africa. So one of the things I had done was do some social protesting, had uh, done some sit-in demonstrations in the, the Northeast, built some shanties while I was at Dartmouth. When I went to graduate school, I got um, involved in the, the challenges and struggles of the Texas communities and did a sit-in protest, and I'll tell you, the state of Texas doesn't play um, social protests the same way that the state of New Hampshire does. Um, ended up going on, going on trial for over a year, um, and it disrupted my graduate studies in physics. Started to think about, was I going to just keep going on the, the gravitational theorist route? So in order to resolve this, I moved to the country of Zimbabwe. And... <laughs> Well, like anyone would do. <laughs> so it was as close as I could get to South Africa without using white privilege. Um, ah. I was one of two teachers in the country teaching the Cambridge A-level computer science courses. And I had taken some computer science, but it clearly wasn't my major. But I had enough math and science from Vassar to pick it up. 
one of my proudest accomplishments as an educator was getting all of my students in Zimbabwe to pass the international rigor of the A-level exams. I came back to the States in 1990 um, after being there for a year, convinced that I needed to, to inter, you know, twine this twin DNA of my passion for science and my passion for activism. Um, decided education was the way to merge those strands together. Taught uh, physics and astronomy at Austin Community College, got certified to become a high school teacher, and uh, started teaching in the Austin Independent School District at Travis High School. Um, wow. That's I don't think I've ever um, heard that background. That's, uh, that's an amazing journey. It's wonderful to, to see um, your, your mission um, in life emerge the way it has. So if we, I want to fast forward. Let's see, we met again in Newark, probably in 2010. You were leading the change effort in a, that massive turnaround effort in Newark. That was incredibly challenging work, right? Politically, organizationally, financially. So, you, <laughs> you, no, your hesitancy reflects the complexity, right? Yeah, um, right. So wow. I um, had left uh, D.C. public schools after some governance changes and some trying to figure out what was going to be next for me, uh, did some work around STEM education and uh, had the opportunity to work for uh, another real strong leader in the STEM fields. In this case, I was a consultant, Jan Morrison. But then I went back to district level work. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Newark Public Schools as the new position of innovation and change officer. Basically, Cliff Janey, the superintendent in Newark, had said to me, you have the portfolio of all the broken parts. What are you going to do? And it you know, ranged from modernizing the technology to fixing special ed. Um, and at that point, Newark was under gubernatorial control. The largest district in the state at 40,000, but deeply, deeply challenged. Mayor Booker was there. And I straddled the communities of the tradition and those in the community who didn't trust any change because they figured it was just going to be a new form of oppression. And that really was a, a, a significant cultural component. So we needed to develop skills to respect people's history. But at the same time, we needed innovation because the current system wasn't working. And by trying always to keep one foot in that respect for tradition, and one foot in the need for innovation. You know, Cliff came and went, and then a new uh, team came on. Chris Surf did a lot of great work thinking through. A uh, new superintendent came in. Um, Newark's on a new trajectory. It now has local control back, has right. a new mayor. Um, all the, the change that was seeded in those years is really beginning to bloom for new opportunities and a, a very different portfolio of schools for Newark. We connected again when you were at CAO uh, with our friend Terry Greer during the power-up move that was probably America's biggest and best managed uh, move to one-to-one -one and blended learning. I think you and Lenny Chad played an important role in that program. Is that uh, and just big kudos to Terry Greer, who continues yeah. even after his retirement from formal superintendency to 
to serve as a superintendent emeritus for us as a country. Um, he does. Uh, we did a podcast with Terry, and we talked about the 83 uh, people in the Greer uh, stable that have gone on to lead systems in America. It's sort of an unprecedented legacy. It, he's such an amazing individual, and I encourage all the listeners to dig in a little and find out not only what he's done, but what he's doing now. So yeah, I had the opportunity um, after leaving Newark, I worked for a brief period of time for the state of New Jersey uh, under Chris Cerf, who was then Secretary of Education for the state, um, and got really brief but intense experience working with uh, Evo Popoff and innovation and change across the state, bringing really interesting changes to a, a very different model. New Jersey has 600 different school districts and local control is dominant. Compare that to where I am now in Florida, a bigger state with more students with only 67 districts. Um, just a different set of challenges, but how does one drive change? Uh, I think it was probably my uh, former colleague and leader, Pat Forjone in Austin, who put me onto yeah. Terry Greer's radar. And I think what Terry wanted was somebody who had academic rigor and discipline, had the chops to to meet his expectations for what kids needed to learn, and also new technology, because Lenny was there, and Lenny, coming out of the oil and gas industry, understood global perspectives. So Lenny and I got a chance to execute Terry's plan of, you know, universal access in the digital space, that means both devices and internet, and then have good stuff for kids to do. It's not enough to give them a device. You gotta have someplace for them to land. You gotta have things for them to learn. And uh, power up was the phrase that we had. Um, We were gonna empower up each level, the community, the school, and the student. Um, And Houston's a, a better place, able to survive hurricane evacuations, as well as uh, pandemic physical distance enclosure, and keep learning happening because of the work that Terry seeded, you know, almost a decade ago now. Thanks for that trip to the Wayback Machine. That was, um, that was great to learn more about your background than I had even, uh, that I'd even remembered. The reason I call is we're uh, you're five years in as a CAO at Broward County. It's the sixth largest district in the country, almost 270,000 students. I think you have 241 campuses. Yeah, that that's right? about right, plus about another 100 charter schools out there. Wow. I want to focus on your response to school closures uh, and, the, and the great program that um, you and Superintendent Runcy and team have developed called Learning Never Closes. But a little background is important because you've done such important work since you got there five years ago. I, I know you're building on prior work, but let's quickly recap some of the amazing advances that, um, that you had in place, um, you know, up until a, a month ago. I'll tell you, it was about 5.30 p.m. on March 13, 2020, that the decision to close the schools was made. And it's uh, fresh enough for me to recall the exact date. But before that, I, I mean, I'm, I think when I think of Broward, I think of really great career academies, often wall-to-wall, really well-developed, um, some with, with uh, NAF. 
uh, naf.org and and some that you guys have developed really great English language learner programs, the biggest, the country's biggest speech and debate program, a really great gifted education program. Uh, I, I got the opportunity to visit with a lot of those folks a couple years ago. A great student voice initiative, a really good one-to-one program. I mean, you're a huge district, but you really had a lot of a great foundation in place. Um, I, I guess highlight a couple of those things that you're really proud of. So thank you so much. So, you know, you've already mentioned his name. I want to repeat it. But Bob Runcy has just been an incredible leader here in Broward. And he came in 2011. My wife's from uh, Palm Beach County originally. Her mom's still here. So that's where the opportunity to um, basically come over to Broward from Houston, which was the seventh largest, and uh, move my family and my work and, you know, She's been able to do some incredible things and have the support of her mom. Uh, We have three kids that are in the Broward County Public Schools. So Bob, I think very much similar to Terry, had a very particular vision of what he wanted in a chief academic officer. And it was somebody who could bring both an expectation that all students can learn and achieve and somebody who is not reductionist about that assertion. And what I mean by reductionist is it's necessary, but not sufficient to raise scores on state tests, on NAEP scores, on whatever kind of external assessment. We've got to verify our achievement with kids using these external assessments. But that is woefully insufficient to make sure that they are going to be engaged, active global citizens moving forward. And so I got the opportunity to join Bob and his team. And what we've been able to do is to focus on a couple of transcendent experiences we can give kids in schools that will provide them with the grit and determination, that deeper learning that we advocate for. So as you've mentioned, we have the largest debate program, and that now means that we are offering debate both as a course and as a club activity in all of our middle and high schools, and we have debate as experiences in all of our elementary schools. That is what student voice is about, giving them the experience to articulate One of my big concerns about so much of the the knowledge-centric curriculum and advocacy that we see is that it fails to respect the life experience that our students are bringing into our schools every day. People are so worried about what we need to pour into their heads that we're not taking the time to listen to what they've brought into our classrooms and experiences. And Bob has that and shares that and has certainly empowered me to to work with colleagues um, throughout the organization and the community. So Florida has county systems. We've got 31 municipalities. We've got chess clubs that are partnered with mayors and early literacy initiatives powered by city agreements where they are working in the pre-K spaces. That ability to work with language is directly the precursor skill set that's needed to succeed in debate. Rhetoric as an academic skill, going all the way back to the Greeks, is the ability to articulate one's life experience in a cogent and emotive way. We also have a deep partnership, and I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight this, with Code.org. 
an organization that has done great work around the county, but we're the largest code.org partnership. And we have computer science and algorithmic thinking woven into our general education classes from kindergarten through 12th grade. We are the largest uh, participant and test taker for computer science uh, in the state of Florida, right? So we're, we're bringing rigor through the external assessment, but we're ensuring opportunity and most importantly, participation. It's not enough to offer it. We've got to make sure that kids are engaged. So one of the things we did uh, four years ago now, it was a year after I came, was we decided to create um, a new form of uh, bureaucracy to highlight the need for these non-traditional academic skills. We created a Department of Applied Learning. And Applied Learning encompasses physical education, band, music, civic engagement, computer science, STEM, robotics, drones, all of these emergent and new materials, if we are going to say we care about them, then we need to staff and fund them in the same way we do English language arts, mathematics, social studies, and our historical definitions. So that work around Bob and um, what I've been able to, to help and champion um, to give people permission which is really what my job as chief academic officer is, is to coach and, you know, give people the okay to try and struggle and fail because we're learning so much that it's, it's broadening our investment in kids. And we think they're going to be life ready moving on. Hey listeners, it's your host, Jessica. I wanted to just take a quick break to share an important resource with you. Recently, our team launched the Getting Through Microsite to support educators, leaders, and families on the path forward during this unprecedented and uncertain time. There's something there for everyone, whether you're just getting started with your transition to distance learning or you've had plans in place for a while and now have the opportunity to share your work and guidance with others. We hope this gives you a place for your voice and an opportunity to learn. We know we will get through this together. Check it out at gettingsmart.com slash getting through. Okay, now back to the show. So what happened when the governor closed schools? So we actually preceded him by a couple hours. So the, the three counties in South Florida, Broward in the middle, Miami-Dade to our south, and Palm Beach to our north, have about a third of the students in the state. We, uh, our superintendents convened and said, you know, the COVID situation is such that it would be irresponsible to keep it going. Personally, I had hoped we'd have one more week because we had a professional development day to train people um, to get ready for it the following Tuesday, but it wasn't responsible. So we closed on that Friday. We canceled school for the following week. And then the, the week after that, uh, the, the week of the 23rd was our spring break. So when we closed on Friday the 13th, we immediately began building from what we had already done. Broward's been on a path to extend the physical school environment into the digital space for four years now. And what I mean by that is we wanted to put together an ecosystem that would enable blended and flipped learning to occur at all grade levels by getting the, 
the technical sides of interoperability and platforms and authentication and provisioning done at an enterprise level scale. And we started that four years ago. We've matured on that. It's built into our procurement processes. Our teachers and students shouldn't care about that. What they need to see is that what they see at school, what they see at home, what they see on their mobile devices is all part of one ecosystem. We'd had about half our teachers, not evenly distributed, about two-thirds of our high school teachers and only 20% of our elementary teachers playing in this, and I mean play in the most fun way possible, in this digital extension. We have a learning management system. In this case, it's the Canvas product by Instructure. We are an Office 365 district, and by integrating 365 and Canvas, and then uh, dealing with special education and English language learners, um, response to intervention and other things, making sure that all those are part of one extension. People don't have to leave that ecosystem. We were well positioned, but we had a heavy lift in 17 days between the 13th and when we returned on Monday, March 30th. We, we've done okay. We had 98% of our teachers and counselors and our social workers stand up courses so that we can deliver not just core instruction, but supplemental services. By the end of the first week, we had 96% of our kids who had logged on at least once. As you said, we're a large district. That meant that last Friday, we still had 6,600 kids that hadn't, and we've got staff at the school and district levels who are working from home themselves, making phone calls, sending text messages, trying to track down those remaining kids. There are some who are... Uh, because of circumstances, not able to get the devices we've issued. And we have deployed 82,000 devices. A simple way those, to think. Uh -huh. And those were, were those distributed? Um, those, those are not already at home. Those are devices that you distributed That's right. after the building closure, right? That's yeah, just for a, for a variety of reasons, we hadn't yet moved to device issuance, which is where we know we need to go. But between budgetary and other priorities and events that have happened, um, that's been a little slower than we would have liked. Unfortunately, unlike Houston, we do not issue devices. So what we did in order to close this gap was kind of treat it like a bring your own device, a BYOD, but at home instead of at school. So if you had a device at home, you were welcome to use it. And if you didn't, we would issue you one as a loaner. So in that uh, week, kids could go to their schools, sign a property pass, and take home all the laptops that we tore apart from our class sets and our libraries. Um, and then we had a second round on a Saturday because some families couldn't make it during the week. And now we have processes set up so that kids who don't have devices can go to our food distribution sites because we have 71 schools open to distribute food in the community. So we're using those schools as food distribution sites as places to distribute laptops as well. And we will continue to do so as long as there's a child who needs a device. Do you have a sense that kids are learning? Uh, um, how, what do you think about student engagement? I guess a related question, what advice have you given to teachers about learning expectations um, and, and workload? Great question. So, you know, the first challenge was just to stand up 
the um, ability to engage at a system level, all our kids in a digital ecosystem. We, we accomplished that. We still got some, some to track down, but we're there. Now it really does become a quality question. What is the quality of the learning that's going on? And as one might expect, there's a broad spectrum. Um, what our fundamental organizing principle is, is the teacher-student relationship is predicated on students being present and engaged, and then they need the guidance of a teacher to help them navigate the learning that should occur. And yes, the learning needs to be rigorous and it needs to be standards-based, but in the absence of a relationship, that is abstract and not held by students for the rest of their lives. So we were able to, within 18 hours, deploy the agreement Microsoft made with Instructure that enabled Microsoft Teams video chat platform to be embedded inside of Canvas courses. We had it up and running the next day. We trained our teachers on it during the week of spring break. And our teachers, based on our memorandum of understanding with the Broward Teachers Union, have the ability to go and hold class live in a digitally protected, privacy-insured, walled garden so that the student-teacher relationship is not lost and the learning reduced just to doing these algorithmic digital worksheet approaches. That is not what we want. So what that's also meant is a huge diversity in how well that's going. We have teachers that are conducting one-on-one -on -one tutorials with kindergartners, reading books with them. And we have some teachers who are afraid of the technology or uncertain that we're still working with to, to up their game. We are now having the complaints and problems of success because we have everyone on, we're getting all the complaints that some kids have too much work, some kids have boring work, some kids have too little work. But we have issued, and I've put out two chief academic officer letters to our teachers as a body. The first one really focused on the student-teacher relationship being what they needed to stand up in week one. Week two was about having understanding, compassion with the students as they uh, assign work. This is going to be hard for everyone. We must expect and we must be clear with students that they have the work to do themselves at home, just they have to do the work themselves if we were in the classrooms together. The teachers don't do the heavy lift of learning. The teachers guide it. They orchestrate it. The teacher, the students need to put in that work. I'd like to shift gears and just talk a little bit about um, organization um, and sort of lessons learned around organization. I've, I've heard you describe a, a rhizomatic uh, kind of approach. What, what do you mean by that? So, um, you know, I... I feel that in a classroom, a teacher needs to be the best learner because they need to not only know the subject, they need to study and learn from their students. 
And a principal needs to be the best learner in a school. And as chief academic officer, it falls on me to be the chief learner for the organization. So I try and make sure that I'm always reading things that push my comfort zone. So there's some work that actually comes out of philosophy. And there, there's a part of me that um, has a, a big interest in this, these questions, not of defining absolute truth, but the way in which we as human beings go about understanding what we mean by it. So you've highlighted that I was a physics major. What I didn't touch on is that I was a religion minor and uh, studied the histories of religion. And that's kind of morphed into an interest in philosophy. So there's some work that came out of uh, France in particular that looks at the way in which knowledge is connected, not as uh, taxonomy, this kind of vertical approach, but much more as one of sideways connected pieces of experiences. This is like a grass rather than a tree. If you think of how your lawn grows, it grows horizontally. And there are nodes where growth of blades of grass occur across a network of um, connected roots. Under our digital environment, in our experience of physical distancing, how do we make sure that that is not social isolation? And I've been thinking a lot about how to push horizontal connections. Our communities have been flattened in terms of communication. It's now not the tree branch, the tree root, tree trunk, tree branch, twig, leaf, arboral analogy. It's much more like cultivating rhizomes. And grasses are a kind of rhizome. So thank you for taking that very abstract and forcing me to explain it. So you and um, I just want to talk about the crisis here. And it, it's so interesting that you and Runcie, um, have you've been through crisis before. Um, Marjorie Stoneman uh, Douglas uh, High School is in Broward. You've also been through hurricanes there in Florida, but what you're going through is different than both of those, isn't it? Yes, and thank you for um, raising the, the tragedy at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. We will forever remember those 17 who were killed that day and the 17 injured and the entire community that's been impacted because of that terrible day on February 14th in 2018. That was a tragedy. And we have had our hurricanes. Uh, most recently, the biggest one to impact us was Irma, but we've evacuated for others. Both of those are events that occur within a, a fixed block of time. And then we spend a lot of time recovering from it. Our current situation has the same ability of shutting us down in the immediacy of it. But it is also very different because it is not limited in time. We are uncertain about what the future will be because of the past event of closing. We don't know for how long. We don't know what the difference will be. And unlike the single event of a, a shooter just murdering children in a school or a hurricane destroying homes, what we have here is something which may become endemic. It may be persistent and have 
a very different form of recovery. It may have a very different form of changing our basic ways of behavior. We could institute single points of entry and additional security and better mental health services um, as a result of the Stoneman Douglas tragedy. We can hurricane harden our physical abilities. But when the virus is within us, and we don't know whom may be transmitting it, it it causes a much deeper sense of existential angst. And we're trying to be very sensitive to that. This recovery is uh, going to be different than anything that we've ever experienced. I, I, I guess the crisis is um, different than anything that we've ever experienced. And it's likely to be um, really paradoxical where some people are busier than ever and some are in what, what feels like a depression uh, for many years. And South Florida in particular, I think is going to be impacted. The cruise business uh, will probably never be the same. Who knows how and when Disneyland and, and tourism returned uh, to South Florida. So the, the impacts in South Florida communities uh, is very likely to, to go on for years, but in, uh, in, uh, to varying extents. Right. So th- this is, uh, as you said, a very uncertain uh, period going forward. So it's um, deeply uncertain and cutting a cl- across um, race and class. No one is safe. We know it still has differential impacts on some of our uh, lowest paid but most important workers who do our services that all of us presume and depend on. Um, But as you say, Florida has a particular type of economy, as every state does. Ours is highlighted by tourism, and you've highlighted the uh, cruise industry. But we have another industry that's deeply challenged by the COVID pandemic, which is the retirement community and um, all the care centers that are here, knowing the impact that COVID has a much higher mortality rate on them. And that's, you know, causing deep economic distress immediately, but it will persist. We already expect that at some point the state will come back because of the reduced revenue forecasts and uh, drastically cut budgets, including education. While the, the federal government has taken some initial steps with the CARES Act to address these, it will not replace what has been lost. We have a decade ago, the you know, economic crisis caused by the banking industry. This is much more analogous to the uncertainty of the late 29 through early 30s. We're not quite sure what will be able to return because we don't know whether Disneyland will be welcomed by people to go to, even if Disneyland wants to welcome people to go to it. Right. Dan, I guess I, I want to follow up questions, just lessons in leadership. Um, you, you've had an opportunity to work with some of America's best leaders in some of America's great cities, but in really large, challenging uh, districts. I, I'm wondering how you're beginning to re- reflect on the role of being a, a system leader. What what lessons are you and uh, Superintendent Runcie drawing from this circumstance? 
well, whatever I say here is inspired by Bob, but I'll let him speak for himself. You should do a, a follow-up with him. Um, what I'll say is this, what I've learned from Bob and from Terry, from Pat Forjone and Cliff Janey, and I just do want to highlight Cliff passed away a little over a month ago now. Um, great loss for American education. And all the people I've had an opportunity to work with is that if we are to make systemic positive change, if we are to take the desire for progressive values to become part of the standard operating procedure and ensure fiscal discipline, take all those things that are often treated as the other side um, and merge them together into sustained, high quality seat in every school system, regardless of governance. We've got to respect those who are our biggest critics because they're bringing some nugget of truth. But we cannot allow the noise of people being concerned about a particular anecdote to drive systems change. And keeping those contradictory impulses tied together of being sensitive to the experience that's lived, even when people are very upset because of decisions that need to be made. And that could be something from as simple as moving a principal to closing a school. We've got to also make sure that people have the chance to hear why we're doing things and why it is we are making the decisions, not just on what the decision is. Being a little uncertain all the time is a requirement for leadership. But being made inert, freezing. Uh, you know, there's an old lyric that says, if you choose not to decide, you've still made a choice. Right. Choose to make the errors of commission, not the errors of omission. Don't let things linger. Get in front of them. Yeah, it's a great it's a great summary of the paradox of leadership, right? Of being open uh, to your community, uh, and and also being certain about your core values and about a a direction and that that mixture of uh, of flexibility um, and uh, forward motion towards this this goal of equity and excellence that uh, you've described so well. Um, it's uh, That's the work, right? That is the work. And um, as I hope I've been able to highlight, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, I want to give a big shout out to Getting Smart as being a platform for doing it. And it as the latest incarnation of how you yourself are both standing on the work of others, but now we're able to stand on your shoulders as well. Yeah, with a little bit of <laughs> uncertainty. Dan, we uh, we really appreciate your leadership. Give our best to Superintendent Runcy and the team. Um, you you guys are doing great work for the 270,000 young people in Broward. We so much uh, appreciate your time today. Take care, Dan. We'll we'll be in touch. Tom, you as well. Thank you so much, and be safe. Be well. Don't be socially isolated. See you soon. Take care. Thank you.
A big thanks to Dan for joining us during an incredibly busy period. We appreciate his thoughtful leadership through challenging times. During the episode, Tom mentioned podcast episode 234 with Terry Greer. Make sure you check it out. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog for this episode. We'd also encourage you to dive into all of the resources in our Getting Through series. We launched that series back in March as more and more schools began to close, and it serves as a resource for leaders, educators, and families. You can find that at gettingsmart.com slash getting through. All right, that's it for today, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.